Ruth, New Art on Stage. Welcome to the third podcast of The Art of Assembly, a series produced by Brut Theater in Vienna in collaboration with Wiener Festwochen and Münchner Kammerspiele. My name is Florian Malzacher. I'm a performing arts curator, dramaturg and writer, and the host of this series of talks. This podcast is based on a live online conversation on March 20th, 2021. In The Art of Assembly, we try to investigate the role, but also the potential of assemblies in politics, activism and art marking the 10th anniversary of the square movements that spread all over the planet, beginning with the social protest in Tunisia and Egypt and continuing in Europe, the Americas, Africa, Asia till today. By the way, if you're joining us for the first time, you might want to have a look at our website where you find the lectures of the past editions, as well as a lot of links, videos, material, etc. related to our topics. In our last edition, together with the art historian Julia Ramirez Blanco and the filmmaker Oliver Ressler, uh, we took a close look at the role of assemblies in different social movements, like Occupy Wall Street and 15M in Spain, but also within current struggles, and how they function and how they can be part of imagining radical forms of democracy. Today, we zoom out again and take a quite different angle. The title Assemblism of today's session comes from the use of the artist Jonas Stahl, who appropriates it from Judith Butler and Athena Atanasio. For Jonas, Assemblism describes the role that art, performance and theatre can play in the assemblies of mass protests, something that very much also informs his own work. Political theorist Jody Dean has a more critical view on these assemblies. For Dean, the main focus lies in the question if they're actually able to be translated into more sustainable forms, which for her means into a new communist party. But she also criticizes the focus on the form, on the event of the assembly itself, which Stahl, together with Butler, claims to be performative. And not only then, this claim is actually something that plays a strong role also uh, for this series of talks, for example, when you listen to our last episode. So tonight we will first, with a talk by Jonas Stahl, have a look at the potential of art in not only investigating or intervene, inventing new forms of assembly, but also in contributing to the process of transforming them into sustainable organizational structures. After that, Jody Dean will take a close look at recent political mobilizations from quite opposing sides of the political spectrum. And she will raise the question if the notion of precarity is actually helpful when it comes to define political movements. Jonas Stahl is a visual artist whose work deals with the relation between art, propaganda and democracy. Assemblies play an important role in his work that I personally first encountered uh, with his New World Summit at the Berlin Biennial in 2012. For me, Jonas' work has long been among the most consequent artistic approaches to not only observe, criticize or represent politics, but to really intervene and to understand art also as a tool for social change. And as a disclaimer, I should mention that we also collaborated on a couple of projects uh, most recently on the ongoing program Training for the Future. And I should mention his recent book, Propaganda Art in the 21st Century, published with MIT Press in 2019. 
Jonas is joining us from Athens. The floor is all yours. Thank you so much, Florian, for the invitation and for the introduction and uh, to everyone at, um, at Brut for hosting us. And of course, it's an honor to share the um, platform tonight with uh, Jody Dean, whose work has influenced my own practice in, in many, many ways. So as Florian said, much of my uh, practice, artistic practice builds on the imaginaries that emerge through popular mass movements and their struggle for new egalitarian forms of life. And to describe this process, I use the term assemblism. And I want to show you a slide, but for some reason that is not happening. And I don't know why. Ah, here you go. And so to describe this process, I use the term assemblism that derives from the work, as Florian already mentioned, um, of Athena Afanasiou and Judith Butler on performative assembly in their book, Dispossession, the Performative in the Political in 2013 which was also the foundation for Butler's subsequent work towards a performative theory of assembly from 2015. Now, Afanasiou and Butler describe how shared experiences of precarity bring people to seek one another on streets and squares or through coordinated hunger strikes in the prison industrial complex. And although at such moments we bodily gather or coordinate unchosen, uh, pressured by the forces of, disp of dispossession. In the process of assembly, we do not merely oppose the powers that be, but we begin to prefigure to perform its possible alternatives. And in this regard, Butler writes, a social movement is itself a social form. And when a social movement calls for a new way of life, a form of livable life, then it must at that moment enact the very principles it seeks to realize. It, this means that when it works, there is a performative enactment of radical democracy in such movement that alone can articulate what it might mean to lead a good life in the sense of a livable life. These new prefigura prefigurative social forms manifest as general assemblies, alternative media channels, self-organized healthcare infrastructures, and open source libraries. Now, while the practice of performative assembly cannot and should not be understood in purely artistic terms, Butler references terminology that emphasizes the role that art plays within performative assembly. So for example, she discusses the assembly as an assemblage. She speaks of the theatrical dimension of the assembly and the visual morphology of its social forms. I use the term assemblism to refer specifically to these artistic components of performative assembly. An artistic practice in that sense can be described as assemblist when it acts in performative assembly to contribute to the shaping, to shaping the morphologies of its social forms. Now here it's also important to name the conflictuous nature of performative assembly as well as its limitations. The Yellow Vest movement in France, for example, shows that performative assembly does not by definition prefigure emancipatory politics. This movement, the Yellow Vests, consisted both of reactionary forces linked to parties like the racist Rassemblement National of Marine Le Pen, as well as progressive forces related, amongst others, to the French labor movements, the Kurdish French, to the Kurdish French militants and others. So the site of performative assembly is thus also a site of struggle. It's a site of struggle over which social forms are to persist and construct reality differently. Here, Jody Dean's book, 
crowds and party is essential, I believe, as she describes the need to canalize the egalitarian potential and energies of the crowd, the performative assembly, through the party form. She warns not to fetishize the initial moment of assembly and protest as a goal in and of itself, because when these energies are not acted upon organizationally, it risks exhaustion of social movements, disillusionment about the impossibility of change, and capture of emancipatory transformative momentum by authoritarian parties and regimes. In her words, it sometimes seems as if people on the left love revolution, but hate the party. We enthusiastically support transformation, especially personal transformation. Yet in the same breath, we scoff at institutionalized practices strategically oriented towards the pursuit of radical political change. Many of us reject, many of us thus reject the organizational form that marks the difference between the chaos of revolution and the building of a new political and social order. With this rejection, we shield ourselves from a confrontation with the real of division, luxuriating instead in the fantasy of the beautiful moment. And here we can just think of the 2011-15M Los Indignados movements that emerged in Spain, Catalonia, and other regions, had organizers not worked tirelessly to translate its prefigurative social forms into a party form, Podemos, which entered into a left coalition just before the coronavirus pandemic, then private healthcare infrastructures would not have been nationalized and a project for universal basic income would never have come off the ground. From an artistic point of view, this is where we move from assemblist art practice that is focused on the prefigurative social form to organizational art practice that focuses on the organizational and the infrastructural form. So whereas assemblist art practice operates within performative assembly, organizational art practice translates the egalitarian discharge of the crowd, durational infrastructures and alternative emancipatory institutional forms. Now, as Florian already mentioned, mentioned, Dean emphasizes the need not for any party, but for a communist party to ensure egalitarian life forms to structure our shared realities. That still leaves the questions about the form, the morphology of a 21st century communist party. And here, I believe organizational arts comes into play to push the prefiguration from the squares towards institutions for emancipatory self-governance and collective ownership. In that light, I now want to discuss some examples of my own practice on the intersection of assemblist and organizational art practice that will focus on the form of the stateless parliament, collectivized trillion dollar companies, and the experimental pro proletarian biosphere. I will start by discussing my artistic and political organization, New World Summit, a series of alternative parliaments for stateless and blacklisted organizations that I created uh, with my team, that I create with my team in theaters, art institutions, and public spaces since 2012. This organizational art project emerged in response to the ongoing war on terror to challenge the us versus them master narrative. Is it possible, we asked, that politicized civil society that opposes the war has more in common with the organizations persecuted in the war than with the criminal terrorist states that claim to speak and act in our name. In the alternative parliaments of the New World Summit, we aim to reassemble, to recompose who or what is to be defined as us 
in the us versus them dichotomy. In our work, this process is led by representatives of stateless and blacklisted organizations that stem from long histories of anti-colonial, liberational and socialist struggle. Rather than following the war on terror narrative that terrorists are somehow driven by an innate hatred of democracy, we instead contrasted the capitalist imperialist democracy underlying the war on terror with communalist, collectivist and stateless democracies. The morphologies of the alternative parliaments play an important role in this process of recomposing collectivities. Our parliaments double in form, breaking with the pre-existing hierarchies in liberal assembly, enabling bodily intimacy with political representatives speaking from within rather than to the crowd. The chair in traditional parliaments, the chair to sit on, not the chair that leads the proceedings, the chair in traditional parliaments, which breaks the possibility of the collective into individualized sovereign representatives, is rejected in favor of the communalist dynamic of the bench. In other words, we aim to translate with the New World Summit emancipatory ideology into emancipatory form and contribute through emancipatory form to the furthering of emancipatory ideology and, and its practice. Organizing the New World Summit also led to more intimate collaborations, amongst others with the autonomous Rojava government in northern Syria, in West Kurdistan, that invited us to develop a new public parliament for its stateless democracy, a political model based on local self-governance, gender equality and communal economy. The parliament we created is shaped, is, is shaped as a public space, and as such rejects the separation between the people and the governing class. Its circular form emphasizes collective representation and collective ownership, surrounded by pillars on which key terms from the Rojavan social contract are represented as a spatial manifesto. The parliament translates revolutionary ideology into a spatial form, but that's not the end point because it simultaneously operates as an arena where these ideas are furthered and further propagated in practice. In this context, the notion of statelessness in the Rojava's model of stateless democracy, it no longer stands for a position of radical precarity or powerlessness. It stands as a precondition. Statelessness is a precondition for liberation from the patriarchal, nationalist and capitalist capture of the state. It is in that sense, a proposition of a 21st century withering away of the state. Now, allow me to share a second example from my practice in which, similar to the New World Summit, assemblist art practice and organizational art practice intersect. And this concerns the collective action lawsuits Collectivize Facebook that I initiated together with human rights lawyer Jan Vermont. In our indictment, in the indictment that we have drafted against Facebook, which we will be submitting to the United Nations Human Rights Court in Geneva, we argue that Facebook infringes upon the right to self-determination of peoples and individuals in various ways. The corporation instrumentalizes users as neo-feudal data workers. It extracts our data and that essentially constitutes Facebook's profit model, but we are not remunerated for this. Facebook employs racist algorithms in its targeted advertisement uh, uh, campaigns and campaign possibilities. It uses 
It's used in various surveillance capacities that infringe upon privacy and further impacts democratic elections in disproportionate ways of which data capture and targeted campaigns of Cambridge Analytica have been a recent and most well-known example. And the corporation has willfully advised authoritarian regimes such, such as that of Duterte in the Philippines. As a result, Forman and me argue that the very structure of ownership of Facebook is what essentially undermines our individual and collective right to self-determination. And therefore, our demand is to have Facebook recognized, first of all, as a public domain, and second, to consequently transfer its ownership to the 2.3 billion Facebook users active on the platform today. As unpaid data workers, we worked for it. We worked for Facebook. Now we must own it. It's time to socialize so-called social media. Now to clarify, to collectivize Facebook does not to mean to reform Facebook, neither does it mean to nationalize Facebook. We aim to turn trillion dollar companies, of which Facebook is, is one of them. We can also think of companies like Amazon or Bayer that owns Monsanto, Alphabet that owns Google. We aim to turn trillion dollar companies into new models of transnational cooperatives collectively owned and governed by their users. This is, following the Rojavan practice of stateless democracy, a potential pathway to create transnational unions beyond the corporation and beyond the state. In these past months, Forman and I have organized various pre-trials, preliminary tribunals, to introduce our indictment and invite publics to join our case as co-claimants, but also to invite witnesses to witness the future that becomes possible if we win the case. So we do not ask witnesses to witness, to confirm the argument, the legal argumentation of our indictment. We ask them to uh, witness the future that becomes possible when we win through our indictment. Witnessing the future is an essential part of our case, of our collective action lawsuit, because while our indictment aims to provide a legal framework to reclaim common ownership over trillion dollar companies, that still leaves open the question how we would govern these collectively as transnational cooperatives. What would be the decision-making structure for 2.3 billion co-owners of Facebook? Do we ban advertisement? Do we ensure encryption? Do we decentralize servers or even dismantle its infrastructure as a whole, considering its heavy reliance on extractive industries? And for anyone that is listening, and that shares our argumentation, we invite you to read the full indictment and join as co-claimants at collectivize.org so that when we file our indictment, we need, we will be in the thousands, in the tens of thousands, in the hundreds of thousands to make a collective case for collectivization. Now, of course, the model of the collective action lawsuit against Facebook and other trillion dollar companies cannot succeed without broad alliance with popular mass movements and precarious workers. For this reason, we are also involved with the global Make Amazon Pay campaign, uh, for which we developed a visual morphology that you can see here. And for those who are not familiar with the campaign on Black Friday, November 27, 2020, it was this campaign coordinated by Uni Global Union and Progressive International that organized parallel strikes, demonstrations, and projections at Amazon, Amazon warehouses across the world, in India, Bangladesh, Australia, Brazil, Mexico, various European countries, and the United States, including at CEO Jeff Bezos, his mansion that you can see here. 
it is very important to remind them that we know where they live, but also that we know that corporations and that a corporation is not a person and that we are able to identify um, the people responsible for the structural precarity and extraction of our labor, of our natural resources, um, to hold them to account. The visual morphology of the Make Amazon Pay campaign consists, as you can see, of a doubling of the Amazon icon. Uh, that can be read both as a smile beneath the word Amazon, <clears throat> but also as a forward arrow. So doubling this arrow, doubling the smile placed on a red canvas emphasizes the demand to return uh, following the manifesto that was published by uh, the coalition of different organizations and unions that supported the campaign. It means return rights to Amazon workers. It means return their labor by providing fair income, social security, the right to unionize, return the environmental costs of carbon excess, return profits made through tax avoidance. Simultaneously, hijacking and socializing the Amazon visual identity also aims for a first step towards replacement. It's not just a process, it's a projection of an Amazon that could be opening a visual portal towards a future that is a future Amazon that is owned and governed by its workers and users. In other words, a collectivized Amazon. Now, Jody Dean in her latest book, Comrades from 2019, speaks of a collective desire for collectivity that underlies the party form and the political relationship embodied by the term comrade that affirms discipline in common struggle and that affirms a struggle on the same side. The final example that I want to share with you on the intersection of assemblist and organizational art practice relates to an expansion of precisely this notion of comradeship. And it concerns a project titled Interplanetary Species Society that responds to the current endeavors to turn humans into an interplanetary species by building settlements on the red planet, certainly our planet, Mars. One of the most prominent actors in the endeavor to turn humans into an interplanetary species is of course the organization SpaceX founded by Elon Musk, but we can also think of Jeff Bezos, his own Moon Express, that aim to terraform Mars as a backup planet, quote from Musk, terraform Mars as a backup planet in case of environmental disaster or nuclear catastrophe on Earth. Apart from the deep cynicism of sending workers to terraform a backup planet for the 0.1%, it is important to consider the vocabulary used by organizations like SpaceX, which shamefully replicate colonial language by declaring, by declaring a new generation of pioneers and the Mars colony. Interplanetary Species Society that you can see here takes the form of an alternative experimental biosphere and instead calls for humans to think of ourselves as guests rather than pioneers, to engage in interplanetary cooperation rather than colonization, and most of all, to engage our thinking of interplanetarism into a form of intraplanetarism, meaning a deepening of our role in comradely bonds within ecologies that sustain us on Earth. This project, this alternative biosphere, was located in the Reactorhallen, 
a former underground nuclear facility in Stockholm. And it seemed relevant to me that building the facility underground originally was once intended to protect the surface from radiation, while in the course of the unfolding climate collapse, it is us that will be forced underground, deeper within Earth, intraplanetary, to protect ourselves from the radiation of the surface. Now, our biosphere gathered humans with neo-constructivist ammonites, proletarian plants, and meteorites to enable a form of assembly not only with the ecologies of our present, but also with those of the deep past. The neo-constructivist ammonites, for example, that you can see here, are fossils of ammonites, a family of octopus and squid that lived between 300 and 66 million years ago and that perished in the fifth mass extinction. Now, it might seem that human life and ammonite life is vastly different in terms of our, our experience of lived time, our organic, organic composition. But the ammonites are witnesses of the fifth mass extinction, just as we are witnessing the sixth. They're, they are fossils, and we are fossils in the making. Further, the ammonite is literally the fossil in fossil fuel. Millions of years of aggregated, decomposed bodies of animals and plants that racial capitalism burns to accelerate the present and undo the possibility of a future in which humans can survive in a meaningful way. Of course, the constructivist bodies and slogans of the Ammonites refer to the work of the constructivist and productivist artists in the Russian Revolution. And this might seem paradoxical as it was the, as these artists embraced the industrial paradigm that structured, that structured their work. But artists, artists such as Popova, Stepanova and Rochenko also developed a theory of the object as comrade, meaning that in revolution, commodities would not just become collective property, but revolutionary agents in their own rights, comrades. In interplanetary species society, this idea is expanded into the political recognition of the non-human comrade, with whom we share an ecology from deep past to the present, and with whom we share an urgent struggle to ensure deep futures and the biosphere for all. Now, in conclusion, it seems relevant to mention the cultural wing of the Progressive International, the partner in the Make Amazon Pay campaign, the, um, the cultural wing of the Pro Progressive International that was launched yesterday under the name Art of Internationalism. The dozens of artists, cultural workers, collectives and theorists, theorists that joined the platform from across the world, to me shows a common understanding that our imaginative competences must go hand in hand with emancipatory political work through a new transnational party form. As we are faced with planetary crisis in the form of neo-fascist regimes, global precarization, structural racism, and ecosystem collapse, our collective desire for collectivity desires structural organization at scale. From an artistic perspective, that means moving from assemblist practice to organizational ones to ensure the transformation of artistic egalitarian imaginations into political reality. And with that, I hand the floor back to Florian. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Jonas. A lot to talk about. But first, I'm very happy to introduce Jody Dean, because you're a crucial thinker for the topic we are circling around. And not only this, 
I already mentioned you're also a clear voice when it comes to challenge the notion of assembly and to stress the danger of romanticizing it. Your writing is always concerned with the question of how to build alliances, how to unite in the struggle at hand, rather than being atomized in innumerous subgroups. And for this, it needs, in your view, a, quote, communist horizon, as also one of your books is called. In Crowds and Party, the book that is maybe most important in the context of the series, you argue that Occupy Wall Street and many other movements at the end were limiting themselves by falling into the trap of individualism, a trap that is actually set up by capitalism. For a sustainable movement, it is important to focus on common goals and to build structures. It needs, in your view, a party, a new communist party. This line you also follow in your latest book, where you plead for the figure of the comrade, and this is also the title of the book, rather than, for example, for the figure of the ally, which is very popular at the moment. I hope we have time to get a bit into this later on. But now I hand over to you. Jody Dean is a professor of political science at Hobart and William Smith College in Geneva, New York, from where she's also joining us. And your lecture has the telling title, Which Side is the Freedom Side? Thanks so much. I'm really happy to um, be part of this. Thanks for the invitation, Florian. And it was great to hear Jonas's um, presentation. I was fortunate enough to be Uh, part of one of his New World Summits. And so it's great to hear um, about the shift from um, assemblist art practice to organizational art practice. I think in some ways my comments are more um, part of a, a, a way of drawing out the need for this organizational shift. And so there's some um, kind of criticisms of the focus just on precarity, but maybe we can take up some of those um, in the discussion. Uh, a prominent chant in the demonstrations against racist policing that erupted last summer in the wake of the murder of George Floyd was the song, Which Side Are You On? Made famous by Pete Seeger, the song was written in 1931 by Florence Reese, the wife of an organizer with United Mine Workers based in Harlan County, Kentucky. In the 1960s, Which Side Are You On? was taken up in the civil rights movement in 2014, it was sung in protest against the police murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. In September 2020, demonstrators in Rochester, New York, sang it in marches protesting the police murder of Daniel Prude. Singers call, which side are you on, my people? Which side are you on? The response, we're on the freedom side. And I begin with this history because I want to engage some recent thinking about assemblies, collectivity, and politics, particularly from Judith Butler and Jonas Stahl. My general question concerns the usefulness of their emphases on precarity and assembly in analyzing mass political mobilizations. Do precarity and assembly help us understand the protests in the United States during the summer of 2020? Butler and Stahl assert a deep connection, even an identity, between the presence of bodies in public space, bodies that have in some sense been forced to assemble, who have no choice but to assemble, and the content of their politics. 
that precarious and vulnerable bodies have come together testifies to the ravages of neoliberalism and bodily expresses a demand for care. And this is particularly Butler's argument. And I disagree with this. Precarity does not name a politics. It names a feeling associated with a condition that people come together in protest to demonstrate aggrieved and infuriated doesn't tell us what their politics is. That comes from elsewhere, outside, from something beyond and irreducible to their gathering. We can call that outside history and truth. This is why protesters make signs, bring banners, wave flags, and display props testifying to their politics. Presence is not enough. It has to be made present, represented, named. And even then, the politics may not be clear, not immediately. Consider the assault on the US Congress on January 6th, 2021. Thousands of people stormed the Capitol to try to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election. Most of the rioters had been at a Stop the Steal rally where President Donald Trump claimed to have won the election by a landslide. Just as he had been asserting for months, Trump said that the election had been stolen in, quote, the most brazen and outrageous election theft and there's never been anything like this so pure theft in American history, end quote. In his over an hour long speech, Trump ranted against weak Republicans, the Supreme Court, the media, quote, we will not be intimidated into accepting the hoaxes and the lies we've been forced to believe, end quote. He told the assembled that they had gathered together, quote, for one very, very basic and simple reason, to save our democracy, end quote. The election wasn't just stolen from him, it was stolen from the country, from the country, from them. Trump detailed numerous allegations of fraud and error and mysteriously lost ballots. Wrapping up the litany of complaints, he added, quote, I could go on and on about this fraud that took place in every state and all of these legislatures want this back. I don't want to do it to you because I love you and it's freezing out here, but I could just go on forever, end quote. Love, endless grievance, stolen futures, the theft of their vote, their will, their choice. Trump embodied and performed the identity between his supporters, their view of their country, their democracy, and himself. Reports on those arrested at the Capitol, um, arrested for the Capitol assault, find that 60% had histories of financial problems, such as bankruptcy, tax liens, foreclosure, and eviction notification. Their bankruptcy rate was twice the American average. 20% had faced losing their home. Jenna Ryan, a 50-year-old woman from Texas with these same financial problems, charged into the Capitol shouting, fight for freedom, fight for freedom. Expert commentary on the motivations behind the assault on the Capitol identified people's feelings as being about more than just economic insecurity, but a deep feeling of precarity about their personal situation. Precarity combined with a sense of betrayal or anger that someone is taking something away mobilized many of the rioters. 
Butler's and Stahl's emphases on precarity don't enable us to distinguish between the vulnerability expressed in a fascist assembly and that expressed in a progressive one. Which side is the freedom side? The politics of gathering isn't simply from the gathering, it's from the political content that stimulated, led to, called for the gathering. Some element of political content, no matter how inchoate or incoherent, is necessary for the cohering. Focusing simply on the act of appearing erases that content. The role of organizers is to make it explicit. The role of the party is to make it communist. One might object that the assault on the US Capitol was not exactly an assembly. It was more an anti-assembly, an effort momentarily successful to block a legitimate assembly. This is not a strong objection. Thousands attended the Stop the Steel rally earlier that day. Thousands assembled outside major entrances to the Capitol building remaining there for hours. These actions repeated the demonstrations outside and inside state capitals that had occurred throughout the summer in protest against COVID shutdowns and mask requirements. One might object that these COVID assemblies lacked a deliberative element and so again are not proper assemblies. A possible response could be that the right-wing social media enacts a distributed extended form of deliberation the actual gathering of bodies punctuates these online exchanges. But neither Butler nor Stahl make, a delib make deliberation a constitutive feature of assemblism, nor do they emphasize anything like a proper assembly. On the contrary, for both the improper, unexpected gathering of bodies where they are not supposed to be, the insistence that these bodies announce, the disruption they affect is, quote, a direct expression of the condition of precarity and a protest against it, end quote. Gathering in protest against precarity describes actions. It doesn't name a politics. Precarity is less a site of alliance than it is the setting of conflict and contestation, a condition which people may be provoked to contest. Politics concerns the direction of the provocation the terms of the contest, who and what is to blame, what is the crime and what must be changed, who is called to be an agent of that change and what is necessary for people to hear and respond to the call. Grievance and loss, a sense of being disposable, replaceable, also don't name a politics. I add replaceable here because of the white supremacist demonstrations held in Charlottesville, Virginia, during the summer of 2017, various neo-Nazi and neo-Confederate groups gathered to protest the removal, of Confederate mo the, the removal of Confederate monuments. At a nighttime rally with torches, they chanted, you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us. Butler's analysis of resistance as the mobilization of vulnerability illuminates the structure of feeling of this assembly, quote, when the bodies of those deemed disposable or ungrievable assemble in public view, they are saying, we have not slipped quietly into the shadows of public life. We have not become the glaring absence that structures your public life, end quote. Butler, of course, rejects fascist, racist, and anti-Semitic congregations. Yet her account of precarity vulnerability and assembly 
doesn't provide a means for drawing a line between some grievances and others. The senses of disposability, theft, and loss we oppose, and those in whose name we fight. But only with the line, with the name, do we have a politics. Being in space, deliberate exposure and persistence is not enough. Politics involves the fight over the space and which side we are on. Stalin Butler suggests that bodies assembled in a public place enact or perform a politics that is prior to any explicit statement of demands. Presence is its own demand, especially once we recognize the vulnerability of bodies, what is needed to protect and secure exposed bodies and so on. A limitation of this view is the implicit opposition between the bodies whose presence performs and prefigures a politics that is not spoken, which I've argued is not a politics at all, but a setting or condition for politics, and the specificity of the political demand. The opposition between demand and immediate bodily presence displaces histories of struggles onto site-specific practices condensing fidelity to the truth of this history into demands, as if demands did not arise from the context and commitments that make them legible. Demands express a line, a division that makes them worth fighting for. To present the practices associated with assemblism as alternatives to or prior to demands obscures this division, in effect, evacuating politics from the scene in which it is said to appear. 10 years ago in 2011, the global movement of the squares that extended from Tunisia, Egypt, Greece, and Spain into the Occupy movement appeared to have ushered in a new mode of politics, the occupation of public space for extended periods of time. It's interesting that in the US summer of 2020, this was not a primary form of protest on the left. Why? Oh, I should add, I add on the left for two reasons. First because in the US, the occupation form hasn't been associated with right-wing demonstrations, in contrast to, for example, the 2013 Maidan protest in, in Ukraine. Second, because right and left protest in the US in 2020 generally had similar forms, rallies, car rallies, marches, riots, that often engaged and mirrored each other. And I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second. But what explains the absence of the occupation form of left, a relative absence of the occupation form of left assembling in protest in 2020? The COVID pandemic, um, being in stationary close proximity with a large number of other bodies for an extended length of time might've just felt wrong. So maybe that's why it wasn't so strong. This is plausible, especially when you think about mask wearing, social distancing and how hard it can be to hear people outside. I think though that a better explanation could be that Black Lives Matter has not made the occupation a primary form of protest. Instead, deploying rallies, vigils, die-ins, brunch disruptions, and marches that block intersections or go onto major freeways. Although some in the anarchist tradition disparage rallies and marches, poo-pooing the sign carriers as following passively behind leaders, street marches, especially unauthorized ones on major thoroughfares, these require exceptional courage, 
demonstrators can be hit by cars and sometimes they're deliberately hit by cars. That happened outside of Denver this summer in protest for Elijah McLean, another black man killed by police. In the summer of 2020, the uprising of marches protesting the police murder of black people frequently incorporate elements of collective care associated with occupations, providing food and water, hand sanitizer, masks, and having self-organized medics and security. Along with sit-ins and boycotts, marches for black liberation in the US are also legible as part of the legacy of the civil rights movement. The Black Lives Matter and civil rights explanations require that we consider the substance of the protests, their larger history and truth as prior to their form. A third explanation for the absence of occupation and the primacy of marches in left demonstrations during the summer of 2020 continues the emphasis on history and amplifies the politics of truth. The protests were a revolt against racism and police murder, a mass mobilization against the fascism and white supremacy enacted daily through the police occupation of working class black and brown neighborhoods. When they marched, demonstrators claimed social space by circulating through it without permission. They could also approach rally sites such as police stations and city halls from varying directions, perhaps evading police or more often engaging police at different locations bringing the altercation to different neighborhoods. Because the marches were explicitly against the police, calling for the abolition of the police, the defunding of the police, and the jailing of killer cops because Black Lives Matter, the marches, no matter how peaceful, frequently generated violent police reaction, tear gas, tanks, pepper spray, rubber bullets, and the high-pitched high wail of LRADs. The marches sometimes were met by armed and violent white supremacists not explicitly authorized by the state. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, one of these people shot and killed two protesters. Throughout the summer, Blue Lives Matter truck and motorcycle demonstrations circulated to counter the Black Lives Matter protests. Many of these demonstrations would feature Confederate flags, Nazi symbols, and insignia from white militias, along with the Blue Lives Matter flags. Throughout the summer, those people who assembled took a side. In taking a side, they took a stand for or against black liberation from white supremacy and racist police violence, for or against the freedom of police to uphold a social order premised on terrorizing black communities. When there are sides, what is necessary are shows of force and courage, performance of strength and endurance, each side has its symbols or banners that place it in a history. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. They have counter flags where names are countering, the people's names countered the flags of the white supremacists. The fight isn't simply people against the state. It's a struggle over the state. That is over the basic conditions of collective life and the direction we will push them. If we think of the assembly in terms of the general assembly, people gathered in large circles to consider and deliberate, it's clear why this form doesn't appear as a primary feature of protest in the United States in 2020. It's inadequate to civil war. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot, Jody. And um, 
yes, it, it connects quite well to the last session we had, if you heard it, because we were talking about a lot about assemblies and uh, actually some of the points that you were mentioning would also probably apply there. Um, and uh, so, so you said uh, that one, one thing, the focus on precarity is wrong because precarity, as you say, doesn't name a politics, it name, names a feeling associated with the condition. And the other point in this regard uh, was the, I guess, the fetishization of the assembly as a performative moment, as a moment that is political already itself. Maybe Jonas, because you were also directly uh, quoted in this way, maybe you would uh, want to react to, to that, what your view on, on these points is. Yeah, I was I was making notes along the way. Um, I mean, I think the point about indeed there's a kind of first uh, an immediate response can be a kind of technical discussion about what exactly constitutes an assembly, how spontaneous at which at which point, and then of course it's always also important to acknowledge that in that most um, processes uh, described as as performative assembly they also have they have origins they have origins of students that organize with small groups, break down doors of universities so that people can sit in a circle there later on to discuss how to self-govern the place. But th th this and this initial moment of kicking down the door is often not considered as part of the assembly, but is inherent part of it, just as um, in the context of um, the Rojava revolution, the autonomous government of Rojava, self-government through assembly is essential, but wouldn't exist without uh, decades of struggles of the of the Kurdistan Workers Party that was able to establish a um, uh, that that was able to chase Assad from the territory in order for there to to be a model based on local assembly. So um, the idea that the assembly or performative assembly is is somehow uh, spontaneous or would lack um, uh, or stands separated from history, I would also not agree on. It certainly has a history. It builds on a history, and it's it's possible because often because of a history of previous struggle and that struggle does not necessarily have to be uh, a progressive or emancipatory one uh, if we if we think of the examples that Jody just mentioned in relationship to the capital riots the hit I mean the history of the of the of the old right how it is structured in the in the context of the US and the history of paleoconservatism of the militia movements I mean that stretches stretches decades they opened the door for this assembly to manifest in the form of the occupation of, of the of the of the capital i think that in the case of butler of course she speaks about assemblies that have a potential for emancipatory politics i don't think that she denies that there is that there is a pre-existing history that leads to that moment i think she does recognize and i i do that too that many people who join moments of performative assembly might not yet be completely aware of the histories that made it possible for them to appear or the narratives of which they become part. There's also a process for many people of politicization through the assembly. I became a more politicized person one, once I was in Occupy than before because the experience of collectivity and starting to challenge and question what that collectivity could bring also made me more aware of the history that I was part of be joining on the joining on the um, square. Um, so, and I think, so this, so yes, of course, we're driven, even in the case of the Occupy, of the Occupy movement, we're driven by a common narrative of, of this possession, the, the, the the outcomes of a criminal uh, mortgage uh, mortgage system, the capitalist class in general—that's that's a narrative in the case of 
emancipatory examples of popular assemblies. But then there's still the consequence of this narrative is not always completely, is not always yet defined. I mean, if you think of the Petrograd women's protests um, that that started or were a crucial point of the 1917 revolution, the demands to bring down the Tsar, the demand for bread. Yes, in some case that was done with the with the red banner in hand. But did that count for, was everyone already, everyone joining that mass movement already fully aware of the politics that they were that they, they were enabling or was that politicization part of the process? And what were these mass protests not also a site of contestation of the kind of interpretation, even if everyone would, would wave the red flag, there was still a contestation of what kind of politics that red flag would result into. So this I think is the crucial prefigurative dimension of the um, of the of performative assembly of the popular mass movement of the of crowd dynamics um, the outcome of that is an outcome of struggle over the meaning of that form so yes it has a pre-existing history that doesn't mean that everyone in the assembly that appears in assembly that appears in the popular mass movement that appears in the crowds is equally aware or shares equally the interpretation and the future of what that history should lead to at that specific moment. That is still part of the part of the struggle. And uh, maybe also a point uh, in, in the case of Butler, when uh, when Jody mentions uh, why were there, were there no circles in the case of, of the BLM protest, because it's a civil war, it's inadequate. That's, that's completely, I would completely agree. Uh, but Butler mentions many forms of uh, performative assembly, including the hunger strike, for example, um, that has, I mean, clear common motivations, a, a, a shared history, although the, the, the history between all the participants in the hunger strike might not be exactly uh, the same, um, that come at a, at, a, at, a, at a high cost and we have, are, are not, don't follow the kind of liberal form of, not, let's put it more simple, not every form or morphology that Butler describes in the case of performative assembly is necessarily a liberal form in the way that the Occupy movement tended to produce um, very, um, yeah, tended to produce this 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 kind of um, liberal form of assembly. So, the analysis that assemblies are actions and not a politics, or or that they are an analyzed as such by Butler, I I don't think that I agree with that. I'm sorry that my response is a bit scrambled because I didn't read the text before. So this is just. I'm, I'm speaking as I was listening to you to you speak. So yeah, let's. I, I hope we can get into some of these details. So uh, first, um, I I I find it strange to include honestly the hunger strike within assemblies. I think that starts to really expand. Like any kind of politics is becomes some any kind of resistance politics becomes lumped into assemblies. So that move on Butler's part, I just find really look like strange. Um, so that's first on the hunger strike thing. Second, so I think where the issue here is, is um, what is, what are we, which aspect of the protest or of a, of a protest moment are we emphasizing? So we, you agree, yes, with um, there's always, there's a history. Okay. But then your move, Jonas, is to say not everyone. But my argument doesn't require everyone. I'm not talking about like the, you know, every people, every person who comes in. I'm interested in the organizers because I'm interested in the party here. And when 
it seems to me that when you when you say, well, maybe everyone wasn't fully aware and people change and blah, blah, blah. I don't mean blah, 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 dismissively. I mean, like, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that is ignoring, in my view, the role of the organizers who are pushing the struggle that's there, right? It's the, that's where the sides come in. You can't think about the struggle if you're or without articulating the sides. And then that means the folks organizing from a particular side. So the um, Petrograd women, yes, right? Like that was, you know, coming out of, of their work in their unions, coming out of, 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 of that particular, like, it was, I guess it was like um, early International Women's Day, even before International Women's Day was official. Um, but the Bolsheviks are able to push that over that the next few months, right? So that's even why we think back of this as part of the specific Bolshevik revolution, right? Because of a sign and because of the specificity of that political side. Like we're not talking about the February revolution from the standpoint of you know, the czar or the whites or even like peasant SRs, right? We're we think about it from the perspective of the, you know, the red flag of the, um, you know, of the Bolsheviks. I mean, you could conceivably, you know, tell a story that's going to end with Kronstadt, but in fact, that's not the story that you're telling, right? Or in your example, right? It's, it's anchored in the specificity of the Bolshevik side. And that's what I'm trying to bring out with this critique of the prefigurative dimension of assemblies. Like I think that, that that emphasis doesn't let us see the work of people who are making the decisions around chairs and benches, creating the spatial forms, like that kind of work, right? Doing the visuals, that's it, that I think of that as party work. And I loved your emphasis on the move from, um, you know, a kind of a prefigurative art practice to organizational art practice. But like, I, I love the um, Amazon campaign and the Facebook campaign, both of those. We've got clear sides, right? We know who the enemy is and we know who's being galvanized. I mean, that, that's to me, one of the things that makes those particular projects so really powerful um, politically and aesthetically. Maybe um, before I just uh, continue, I just want to, because I forgot just to say it. So uh, in this, uh, to everybody out there in this Vimeo, you cannot interact at the moment. So we will talk for a while, but uh, there will be a Zoom link uh, quite soon. And then you can join and then we can have a uh, discussion all together. I just forgot to mention this. But coming back to what you just said, I, I, I found it interesting. Uh, Jonas, you mentioned the Yellow Vests as an let's say an ambivalent movement in, in, in that regard. And in Germany, it was mainly portrayed very negatively. Uh, in France, I know for many people who have quite a different view on it. And in two editions, we'll have uh, Didier Eribon here also is claiming that it's, you have to see it as a leftist movement, uh, despite what uh, these things. But I find it quite interesting because you, Jody, describe a situation in the US where, well, <laughs> there's civil war and the sides are clear. So, so there's, there's different kinds of ambivalences maybe, but they are on a very small, much smaller scale. They are not uh, the big, uh, the big conflicts. And um, I'm a bit wondering, like maybe if you could both, in, in line of your thoughts, talk about uh, the possibilities of dissensus, the po possibilities of an agonistic um, assembly or an agonistic movement. How much agonism uh, can a movement have? How much? How much? Um, um, finding out along the way, can a movement have, or does it have already uh, to be 
organized basically this had to be before and it's too late then to have it and then everything has to fall uh, fall in line uh, somehow so so is, yeah maybe because also Jonas you had in your assemblies you have a certain agonistic situation, but of course in, within clear limits. I mean, let's say in the New World uh, summits, for example, there are different positions, but they are, you know, they they are not um, maybe the most different ones. So yeah, so maybe you could uh, tell a bit about the, the possibilities of the census or agonistic um, finding out together, maybe in a way. Yeah, I mean, maybe first in relationship to to the Yellow Vest movement, because I think that's a very interesting example also of um, that, that links back to uh, uh, Jody's uh, the quote that I mentioned of uh, from uh, from Jody's work um, on the fetishization of of the the kind of the spectacle of the gathering as a as an almost yeah as a, as an as an experiential rather than political moment. So what you could see with the yellow vests and the response amongst progressives was that everyone was waiting. Uh, in a way, waiting for the question, is it the good movement? Like, is it the movement that, that gives me liberal credits or that gives me the, the, that gives me the legitimacy to experience this eventual, this, this event, event, eventual moment or not? But of course, the, what, what the reality of the Yellow West movements was that, yes, as Jody mentioned, there were organizers, but there were many parallel organizers with very, very different agendas and different, different histories, sometimes fundamentally conflicting histories that they brought. My Kurdish comrades that joined in the Yellow West movements, they pushed for the movement for it to become a, 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 a much more militant left um, event or to, to they, they were fighting for the narrative just like the unions were fighting for the narrative the left parties the communist party were in France was fighting over its narrative just as the Rassemblement National of Marine Le Pen did it so here I thought was a, a really crucial moment also to see that, that certain forms of um, popular mass movement certain forms of, of performative assembly it, it's part of it is a struggle over its form, it prefigurates something, it, has a, it, it can have a potential, it brings various histories, just as Jody mentioned before, there were many different factions that were, that were active in parallel during the 1917 revolution. And it was also a struggle within who would come to write the narrative or who would come to, um, to structure the discharge of the crowd into a form of structural, of structural governance, of, uh, of in, enforcing or establishing a new, uh, a new uh, uh, regime of power. So it's a space of it's a space of of contestation. The fact that there are organizers doesn't mean that there are still not various different conflicting prefigurations manifesting in the in the mass movement, and that there's a struggle over its final meaning or form. In relationship to the, the question of uh, so, I think it's it there is agonism, there is antagonism. Um, and of course, it's also true that it's it's difficult to talk about these different these different examples and suggesting that they're somehow because there is um, because there are bodies assembling on a space that we can just uh, generically compare one to the other, like the histories that lead to them, the level at which a political narrative is already pre-established or still in the making is also really different in different geographies and different in different political contexts. Um, if you ask me the question about agonism, antagonism in my own work and the role of assembly, meaning of bodies gathering in a space in, in the New World Summit, for example, I mean, these are pre-organized, like they are organized, organized moments that are trying to enforce uh, sides. 
So the New World Summit that uh, Jody also participated in, or one of the editions she participated in, I mean, they, they, are, they are aimed at establishing a new us in another kind of us versus them divide. That's, that's what they're organized to do. They're organized to establish a different side uh, in relationship to uh, the war on terror, for example. Um, Jonas, when you're talking about the, the yellow vest and you're saying that with these different groups, they're struggling over its form, it actually seemed to me like they were struggling over its content, right? Like, like which narrative was going to be the primary issue, right? What was, is, was this a, um, you know, more of a right-wing or a left-wing kind of movement? That seems like that's a content. No one's saying, my God, we need to wear different vests, <laughs> right? Or let's stop gathering or let's only occupy buildings, right? It was a struggle over the content. Absolutely. And if, when I say, when I say, but maybe this is indeed could have, I could have made this more precise, but when I say form or social form, or at least the way that, Butler, that I understand also Butler's use of social form, that's not a form in the sense of a, of a, a purely formal visual appearance. It's not a question merely of, the, of, the, of, the, of symbols. It's about a form of life. It's about relationality. It's about a... Um, it's about a form of governance, of decision-making, of sharing power or transferring power or redistributing power. Form for me is the, is, it relates to the, to the, to the, to the um, infrastructures and organizational models that, that, that we desire or fight over or fight for. Yeah. So, when I speak of morphology specifically, then I mean a genealogy of visual forms. Mm -hmm. but, but these obviously, yeah, these are, these are yeah. The, the, Maybe that was the is the confusion over the term. So, right, if we think, if I think right now about the United States in the summer of 2020, and this is still ongoing. I mean, it's not it's not like it's um, over. Um, there is a massive set of struggles going on over the form of life, and I wouldn't. It's not one movement, right? It's it's civil war, and to talk about dissensus. Um, no offense, Florian, but just to my mind, that's just like, like, just seems so liberal. <laughs> like, we, I mean, uh, my partner would say we'd be lucky to have liberalism, right? It would be nice to be able to have um, enough of enough of an agreement to be able to, um, you know, co communicate with one another in a common assembly. But I think that the assault on the Capitol was a clear indication that it's gotten so bad that we lack that. And that I was just seeing today in one of the newspapers that um, you know, members of Congress are refusing to like interact with one another, right? In the same elevators with one another. Um, you know, multiple members of Congress refuse to get vaccinated. They are, they are essentially repeating lies about the election and about January 6th. And so the, the conditions of possibility for dissensus aren't there, which is, some version of an underlying agreement. So when, it, when with civil war, division goes all the way down. And that's the condition that we're, um, where we are right now. And so then if we go back to the kinds of assemblies that um, Jonas um, puts together, that you're creating an, a, a space for bodies to deliberately come together, I think means that there's some um, supposition of an underpinning of consensus 
at some point for it to even be possible, that your assemblies work because they're not positing civil war, right? They posit rather than a division that's going all the way down. Like you just said, we're trying to create a new us or a new constellation, but it's not trying to um, eliminate or disavow a large, the underlying division, right? It's trying to maybe create a new us, but I don't think it's the same thing as disavowing the division. And if that's the case, then what, then highlighting the division that makes it possible, in my view, is one is important. And that's why I advocate, you know, a language of communism, um, the communist party form, one that makes very clear that this is not every, this is not a liberal, everyone's included, blah, blah, blah. This is no, there's a fundamental division here at stake. I wonder, uh, Jody, I mean, I, I, from the distance, I totally agree that uh, it, it looks like in the US, uh, yeah, it's beyond the census and it's beyond, beyond agonism. It's, uh, it's an antagonistic situation, uh, which the question is if it can be reversed ever or how, what will it, it will lead to. But uh, I mean, I find it interesting when we look at the, at the Yellow West, or I mean, also at the situation at Tahrir Square or whatever, where very, I mean, very opposing liberal artists and uh, uh, also the, the religious orthodox and so on, were all on one square. So it's very, was it very, very, and there are several examples of this. I wonder, was, uh, first of all, I would be interested, do you say there was a situation in the US ever where in one movement before it was defined or where the struggle around narration was still happening, th that all these people met in one movement or is this division already <laughs> so far that uh, rooted so far that this is not there anymore. But, and, but the other question also like in this situation, I mean, like in Tahrir Square or in, I mean, it's very different, but in Yellow West, but in these movements, how, how can this, this um, uh, multiplicity of or, or very opposing views in there, can it, can it, you know, what is the, What's the task of organizing? What is the task of winning the narration in this uh, to make it a productive movement? Or is it already from an early moment on to say like, listen, we have nothing in common. You go this way, we go this way. Or is there a moment where the idea of using this crowd as, as, a, as a mass and keeping it together as long as possible and maybe shifting it into a certain, a certain narration can be, can be of use? I think that the, the latter part of your question makes most sense as towards Jonas. Um, and in the United States, I think because of the history as being a, a slave society and apartheid society, um, that the division is really fundamental. I mean, it's not like it's the case like, okay, let's make sure we can have an alliance um, between the left and the Ku Klux Klan. Um, or you know the communist and slave owners, right? That's that's not the that's not even a goal. Like no, like the, there's no. I mean, there are sites of different where there are other kinds of smaller divisions, right? You can say like whether or not the um, small store owners are going to side with big capital, or whether or not they're going to side with labor. I mean, that's you know you see that in um, lots of different modern societies, even including in the U.S. But that's not the kind of sort of movement politics I think we're talking about. Um, and I think at the stand that, and, and to my mind, this is not a problem, right? This is a good thing. The clarity of the division makes then the galvanizing of the struggle all the more powerful and plausible, right? You can tell people which side that you're on. But how would you view, for example, what would be your view on the Yellow Vests? 
um, I've got to say, honestly, I, I don't want to make a call because it would be, if I were there, I would have been, you know, in there with a hammer and sickle on my back. And I really like the way that that's that double insignia to say, okay, we're in the yellow vest movement, then we have a particular orientation within that movement. Right? That strikes me as, as completely smart and really great. I, it made me think also of how Jonas is bringing the um, Russian constructivism to get together with the Ammonites. I mean, it's fantastic, right? It's like, here's not just a, a symbol of a kind of you know, sort of non-politically clear natural history. It's a, it's a symbol of a red natural history, one that is taking a side, right? When you say fossils, fossils are comrades, not fuels, right? That's a really, really specific, I love that slogan. It's just wonderful, um, right? That's a specific politics and it's intervening um, because um, like ecological and environmental politics, that's also all over the place. That's not one thing, that would be a site where there's all sorts of different um, elements, different kinds of, of, of political um, opportunities, different political sides, different political um, um, groupings, affiliations, interest. And I think Jonas's um, work there is actually making a very, very explicit political intervention in a field, you know, where one can, right? Where it's not clear. It's not, it's not this amorphous, spontaneous thing. It's like, you know, here's this one specific politics. But do you think, sorry, oh, sorry. If you want to. Yeah, I mean, do, do you, it's, do you think that's, um, I mean, in your work, you also describe the history. I mean, you speak of uh, the history of communism as a dynamic history. Vijay Prasad uh, refers to it as a polycentric, polycentric communism. Isn't the, the history of communism also a struggle over the meaning of communism? Yes. So when we say, when we speak of the need of the need of division, um, that happens on on various levels. In the sense that if if you and me agree on the division between a society that is based on private property and theft and extraction and a society that is based on commonly held means of production and a dismantling of private property, there might we might still be facing an, another level of division in terms of the infrastructures and forms that that would bring that that bring that process about. Just I feel that's also part of the history, the history of communism that you have that you have written, the struggle over what it means. Then we know that we are on the same side, but that still that still leaves um, that still leaves a whole set of questions of prefiguration and form over what it what it will mean. And, and to my, um, I don't I don't disagree with anything you've said, Jonas, on that, right? And so, um, at that point, sorry, <laughs> another comrade. <laughs> non-human um at, at that point this is where the party form to my for me becomes absolutely crucial because it's from it's from within a party that the the where it's where basically at the end of the day you, you the decision of of what you know which side what line you know who are your comrades and so for the most part, like you, everything that you outline, like where you and I agree, let's say, you know, abolition of private property, um, the problems of capitalism, et cetera. Yeah, we are comrades on all of those things. Um, there could be 
some other specific questions. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to look for them. Where, in fact, we might disagree, and the question would be like, to what extent are our disagreements on, let's say, some very specific political questions? Um, do they make us no longer be comrades? To make us no longer be on the same side, or are there ones that no, this is not crucial, right? I don't have to agree with my comrades about every single thing. Mm. It depends on what the struggle is and what the kind of you know the conditions of belonging that we're part of, or you might say the the form our form of life or our form of being together. And the party is one of those forms of being together. So it's like it's like the there are forms that we inhabit that in some way, um, let's say, put a stop to the, endless, um, to the endless processing of division and saying, okay, this is where we collectively have made our decision to um, say, these are the fights that matter. These are the points of agreement that matter. Did that, I'm not sure if I said that very clearly. No, it makes, I mean, it I makes sense, but, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, I just, I wonder, because in the way, yes, I mean, one, one can imagine what you mean. On the other hand, of course, the line between where you say, okay, we need a clear division on these points. And on the other hand, you argue against uh, uh, partialization and, uh, and, uh, and a certain uh, uh, claim of identity and so on as, as counterproductive or even destroying this. So where's the line between where we say, here it's good to say we are on this side, you're on this side. And where, where, where is it actually saying, I know what we have enough common common ground as even so you said common ground is difficult to find at the moment but that would be the the moment so 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 i mean where's and that's i mean the yellow west also had a common goal at least to a degree at or co i mean at, at certain moments it's a, it's a difficult to say so there was enough common ground felt to be together for a moment on the streets but then then it, it came it came to its limits but maybe um, I would just um, you can maybe go back to this uh, later on, um, even so, or, or take it another way. I mean, maybe uh, the question of where it gets too uh, commentalized, too partialized, uh, in a way, the question of the role of identity in this, uh, it would be you have a you, you can, for example, when you introduce the figure of the comrade, you also address this uh, problem, uh, Jody and and Jonas, you. Uh, you also with uh, with your assemblies experience moments of limits of being able to assemble assemblies that were basically ended because the disagreement was too strong or the or certain agendas uh, were were seen as more important than others. So maybe you could uh, um, uh, say something to the to the limits or the potential of assemblies uh, in, uh, for this backdrop in a way. I'll just say something very quick because I'm really interested in hearing about like where some of the uh, Jonas's assemblies ended. Like I didn't, I don't know um, those stories. I'm interested in that. Um, from my perspective, identity doesn't name a politics, right? Any that someone has a, a set of ascriptive identities or um, ascribes identities to themselves does not tell us anything about their politics, right? I mean, in fact, um, it's and it's it, it seems quite clear at this point that a right wing um, amplification of the politics of identity is crucial to the way that the fascist backlash and the rise of fascism is occurring right now in in you know across the across the world really so i think um yeah identity just doesn't tell us very much about politics so the far right wants us to think that it does but part of building 
a much, much stronger um, international working class, um, understanding class and you know, working class in a broad sense, the left is actually keeping to point out the limits of these um, forms of ascriptive identity. But, I, I, but I'd rather hear about how that messed up Jonas's, um, or not messed up, I mean, but how it created conflict in some of your assemblies. I mean, of course, in the case of, um, in the case of the New World Summit, we, we work with, with stateless and blacklisted organizations over the course of the development of the summit that, that had a strong focus on stateless and blacklisted organizations that stem from a long history of anti-colonial liberational um, struggle. But that still doesn't, being blacklisted doesn't mean that, you're, that, you're, that, that you agree simply because you're sharing a similar condition of, uh, of oppression or denial. Um, so we've had uh, representatives who claimed um, a right to self-determination or indigeneity to uh, overlapping territories. I mean, that's, that's a pretty good. Then of course the question is, is that, does that necessarily have to be a problem and can also in, in, a space of, um, in a space that borders between political reality and artistic imagination, can it also opt or push uh, other notions of uh, parallel sovereignties of um, uh, of, of uh, overlapping or parallel state forms of statehood. I, I also feel that there's an uh, that it's important to see in a way in in certain conflicts there are also prefigurations of models of models of governance that go beyond the models in which we think in, at present. And I think that, that that that's an important role that that art plays in the process. This is a prefigurative role that art plays in the process. For example. While I was listening to you now, Jody, I was thinking two things. One is um, indeed the, what you explain as the structure of the party. If I think of it in the Roosevelt context, it's the structure of the social contract. The social contract says certain things, and that there is a self-organized army that that elects its its commanders. That this that this army, that this people's army, is tied to gender quotas. That it counts for the for the assemblies as well, that there is a percentual representation of Assyrians and Kurds and Arabs from the region, et cetera, et cetera. And these are not contested. Um, that means contesting these means that you are banned from the right to participate, that communal economy is central. No one has the right to challenge the fact that communal economy is central to the Rojavan revolution. Then we can have a fierce discussion about how do we organize communal economy in a way, how do we organize gender equality in a way that, that matters? And here, I think, is where this, that's the space where comradeship can, can exist with uh, certain divisions or, or conflicts. That was one thing I was thinking. And the second was the last image that I showed of the proletarian plants is an amazing fragment from a poster that I found from a, a Chinese propaganda um, archive. I have, still haven't dated it exactly, but I'm quite sure it belongs to one of the several year plans for uh, collectivization. And of course, it's super interesting that that image represents two things. It affirms the need for collectivization. And at the same time, it does something that is completely counter to its industrial logics by proclaiming not the heroic human uh, peasant um, as the kind of struggling proletarian, but the plant itself as the struggling proletarian. So the artistic component in that poster affirms the need of the present. And at the same time, it's already prefiguring something of the future. Um, the environmental crisis that would be inherent to the collectivization or let's say the industrialist collectivization effort in a very similar way that Alexander Bogdanov in his Red Mars science fiction novel from 1906 was already was supporting collectivization and already prefiguring 
its limits in terms of environmental exhaustion. So it's also very interesting that within um, the common ground of comradeship, there can also already be prefigurations that also conflict with it or that support it and conflict with it at the same time. I think that sounds fantastic. I, I um, as it, you know, as in wonderful and great, and it's it's inter- It makes me think about the ways that um, you know that the, the seeds of the future are always in the present, right? The fact that capitalism produces its contradictions, not just in a negative, destructive way, but in a positive way. That that in fact, in the history of Marxist Leninist thought, it's never been a kind of closed box of determinism, but there's been forms of opening and forms of change and shift, right? This is like, it's basically, it's dialectics and um, in too much kind of postmodern influenced um, late 20th century thought and tried to make dialectics a bad word. Um, but the same, this, I, I would say that this, the phenomenon that you've an, analyzed so beautifully with the proletarian plant is a great example of the kind of wonders of, of Marxist Leninist thought in a in a really broad sense, and it tel- it helps re- um, retrieve it from the kinds of stultifying um, Cold War um, anti-communist, anti-colonial forms of thought that have tried to restrict it. And so that really, I mean, maybe I you know I react um, to prefiguration as as a term that tends to be like on an on a anti-communist side, but really it's just another word for dialectics, right? For finding the seeds or creating the seed or finding the spaces that are already part of the present or part of the new future in the present. Maybe uh, before we open up and we continue in a more informal way with whoever wants to join us, um, uh, something that already came up and, and, and we were also a bit leading to it now to ask for the role of art in this and, and the role, I mean, so at some moment I thought like also some of the questions are actually badly translated into art uh, context would be the, the famous discussion between content and form. So, so what, is the, what is the form without the content? On the other hand, you, Jonas, stress of course the, the form uh, for example, also with very concrete examples, when you mention uh, the bench instead of the chairs in, in an assembly, so so so, and you and, and assemblism, as you said, is also the the role of art within within these movements, within assemblies, within these struggles. So um, while I think um, there's a lot to be said, a lot said already about the, the role of art and 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 uh, in. Uh, in, in mass movements, in assemblies, and so on. I wonder maybe if you both could uh, react to this to the end, like about the role of art in, in a party or for building a party. Jonas, you already meant in the end was a bit were a bit mentioning this uh, in your in your talk. But if you could could maybe say something about yeah the role of art in this process of founding a party of of becoming sustainable of uh, of finding different ways of organizations. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm I'm trying to compute several several thoughts throughout the uh, uh, at the same time. And one is that um, that the parliaments that we work with and the, the analysis that I shared with you about how certain forms might contribute to um, furthering emancipatory ideology, but also try to translate them 
in, in the process. So the way that artistic imagination and political imagination might have slightly different competences, but create each other's conditions of emergence in a way. This for me is a, is a guiding is a guiding line. Without an emancipatory politics, there's no emancipatory art, but it goes it goes into two directions. Of course, it doesn't mean that a, a form is never something in and of itself. Like you, you can make an, a beautiful circular parliament with, with benches, but as long as it operates in a society based on on on, on private property and extraction and uh, structural institutional racism and you name it, then then it just masks. And that's, of course, a task that art has had throughout history to mask the violence or to, as Rousseau put it, to to fling flowers on the on the on the shackles that weigh us down. I mean, this is this this is uh, this is has been historically the, an, an important role of art to legitimize uh, to legitimize ruling powers. Um, as Hito Sterl says it, to make capitalism more, more, more beautiful seems to be the predominant role that art plays in, in contemporary society. So I don't believe that the form can never exist entirely, can never exist without uh, a, a, a political context, without the, the content, as, uh, as Jody put it, and the practice uh, and its application. But nonetheless, I do think that certain forms can further... Um, emancipatory ideology and practice further or better or prefigure more possibilities coming from them. Uh, the example of the proletarian plants was was one that I that I that I shared with you now. But when I read when I read Jody's work and I've I've done it for quite some time, um, I mean not only does does did she does she um, push my own political imagination. And also I think what is very important of in Jody's work is that she has contributed enormously to um, to undoing the propaganda of fear for the possibility of an alternative. So the the fear that has been installed with us when we when someone dares to utter the words communism because communism means gulag means violence means centralized power means completely undoing this polycentric or dynamic history. Um, of communism, but also in a way making a taboo of our own collective desire for collectivity, limiting the political imagination and thus also an imagination of form. Because that's the second part that comes with, with reading, uh, reading her work is that I'm always reading while thinking of form. Yes, I want to be part of, I want to join that, that party. But what is, what is the form of that party? Is the proletarian plant our guiding banner? What other, what are our slogans? Are we demanding for a better future for the children of our children or are we demanding a million more years? Because when we speak, when we stand with, with our Ammonite comrades, so to say, what we learn from that deep, being part of the deep ecology or deep ecology of comradeship is that we can begin to start dialoguing and thinking across millions of years instead of this extremely reduced presence that liberal politics has, has put placed upon us. Yes. So I think that this for me, this is an, this is an important for me, this is an important role that artistic competence plays. It doesn't have a meaning in and of itself. The form in and of itself does not does not say much. But as part of a political movement, as part of a popular mass movement, as part of the party or the transnational party, the terrestrial party, the planetary party, the interplanetary party, it plays a role in pushing the potential agencies and forms and prefigurations of a of an of a communism for the 21st century. I I love um, everything Jonas just said. I thought it was fantastic. Um, 
in particularly the pushing the um, imagination, um, being able to see and think, um, to open up seeing and thinking and imagining is, you know, utterly crucial. Um, and and so I, I really hate any of my answers to the question because um, they're gonna they're too limiting. They're limiting, and so I'm glad we have artists who can tear them up. You know, can open up other things. So just from within the standpoint of a party, I mean, like being when when writing say party material. It's wonderful to be able to find artistic um, examples. Let's say examples from now. I'm thinking of novels or poems or songs to help translate ideas. I don't think I, I'm, I'm, I'm reluctant to say this because I don't want to reduce art to something that's you know, um, you know, that's um, instrumentalized or translated. But that is a super useful part of of what it, of of what artists can do and and do actually do is help. Um, help organizers translate ideas, help organizers transmit ideas, help organizers um, circulate ideas, even as they provide new ideas. So um, I think that that element of, um, let's just, I mean, use an example, this isn't even about a party, but, but about um, art and politics. You know, the, um, the dance that I guess it came from um, Colombia um, in Latin America, the rapist, it was either Colombia or Mexico, I think, um, a rapist in, um, in your path. And women all over the world have been doing that dance as a way of contesting violence against women and the extent of that violence throughout, you know, from the domestic sphere throughout the state. And so here's a way that um, the artistic form of this dance has opened up politics and let there be new bodily experiences of collectivity and power that wouldn't that were not there absent that new um, absent that new creation, right? I mean, yes, people you know have organized and blah blah blah, but here's but here was like something that created something new and important and empowering for millions and millions of women um, all over the world, and so I think that's one of like one very concrete example. Of something of one of the ways that art, the artistic imagination um, impacts um, impacts politics by you know demonstrating and embodying the collective desire for collectivity. Thank you, Jody, uh, for these perfect last words of this session, and thanks, Jody and Jonas, for being here tonight and uh, for your thoughts and for this very lively discussion. And there's a lot we can follow up in future editions. So I would like to mention that on April 10th, uh, Art and Assembly, the fourth part will happen under the title Choirs of Precarity and Power. And we will look at the specific format of choirs as assemblies, but also choirs within assemblies. And my guest will be theater director Claudia Bosse from Vienna, art historian Alia Mossalam from Cairo, and the activists of the Church of Stop Shopping from New York City. And on May 20th, we hope to actually come together physically and analog in Vienna in the frame of Wiener Festwochen, but there will be also a live stream again and the podcast afterwards. And uh, I will talk with Didier Ribon and Chantal Mouffe about agonistic gatherings. Thanks everybody for listening and hope I hope you will join us again. <laughs>